Let's pray together. Father, we are amazed to be able to come before and approach such an infinitely wonderful and glorious God like you. There are two radically different contrasts. There is the infinitely holy God and there is wicked, rebellious sinners. And in order that you might bring us to yourself, you sent your Son. And as we have seen in your scriptures, as he nears closer and closer and closer to the means by which we can approach you, going to the cross and paying our debt, your perfect, infinitely holy, wonderfully majestic Son invades our world, and as he does, he slams into our hard hearts and our easily deceived hearts. And it is so easy for us, as it was in the many crowds that we'll see today, it is so easy for us to, rather than surrender to the King that has come, rather than lay down our lives and saying, your way is perfect, my way is wayward at best, wicked at worst, we seek to use your Son as a means to our own ends. And many times we are not aware of it. And so I pray as we see your Son gloriously, triumphantly entering into Jerusalem, and we see people misunderstand him, that you would expose in our hearts by your Spirit's miraculous power the ways that we might be misunderstanding him, the ways that we might be standing over him and seeing how we might direct his steps rather than surrendering to him and letting him direct our steps, Father. Like we pray every single week, that is a supernatural thing that has to happen. That's not something we can motivate our way towards. You have to change prideful hearts. You have to loosen our tight grips around our own plans for Jesus and our own desires for Jesus and our own wants for this life that we want to see if he can benefit us and break our hands that we might actually surrender and see the glorious life that's on the other side of that death we need to die. And so as we see your son so vividly and so beautifully in his triumphal entry today, do that to us, Lord, even if it is breaking our hands. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see your ways are so much wonderfully higher than our ways, and that we might see and acknowledge how blind we are, and we might sing truly from our hearts as we just sang as a church what a wonderful thing it is to say we are Six sinners who have a merciful Savior with open arms that we might rest in, knowing that he's called us and that he is here specifically for six sinners who need a gracious, merciful Savior. Show that in our hearts. Let us see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of your wonderful Son this morning. We pray in his wonderful name, Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I find interesting almost every time I read through the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Luke, especially the first time I read through, is that Jesus seems to be a terrible evangelist. In fact, he seems to be like an anti-evangelist. He shows up and demons see him and demons say out loud, really, really loudly, look, it is the son of the living God, the savior of the world. And you read that and you think, great. No more atheists, right? Even demons are being great evangelists, and Jesus baffles us and says, hey, be quiet. Don't say anything. Or Jesus will heal someone, someone who hasn't been able to, who's been, who's been lame from birth, will stand up and walk, and Jesus will say, hey, come here real quick. Uh, don't tell anyone about this. Now, almost all of them disobey, like the next sentence is like, and they went and told everybody. So you're like, does he know? Is this like reverse psychology Jesus is playing on them? No, he is telling people over and over again, all throughout the Gospels, we've seen it in Matthew, be quiet. He seems to be going to, to great lengths to keep his identity concealed from the world. And we've seen, especially in chapter 16, as we've walked through Matthew, that identity gets revealed a little bit, but we've only seen it revealed to the disciples 
Peter makes the great confession, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Finally, we see someone see who he is. But then for the next four chapters, he's only with the disciples. He draws them away from the world. His identity has been concealed from the world until today. As the train has been making its way towards Jerusalem, Jesus is getting closer and closer and closer. And as he is beginning to arrive at Jerusalem, as we see this triumphal entry, as it's been called, into Jerusalem, his identity, who he is, is finally going to be made known. It is finally going to be displayed in a very radical way. And as we'll see in this story, who he is and what he has come to do has everything to do with who you are and how you are to live your life. So as we see him enter into Jerusalem, we'll see three things about this identity of who Jesus is. We'll see he's the revealed king. We'll see, tragically, he's the misunderstood king. And lastly, we'll see he is the self-defining king. He's the revealed king, the misunderstood king, and he is the self-defining king. So let's look at verse 1. We'll look at him, him as the revealed king first. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, as the train is finally there, they came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives. We've been on this long journey ever since chapter 16. We're done with the ministry throughout Galilee, going from town to town. Now he's on this long journey to Jerusalem. We saw last week he goes through Jericho. He's getting closer and closer. He's about 15 miles away. And now he's right on the border of Jerusalem. Bethpage is about a mile away. The Mount of Olives is, is literally, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, is a, is a, is a mount that overlooks the temple area. So you stand on the Mount of Olives, you can see Jerusalem in front of you. It's right outside. And as Jesus finally gets to Jerusalem, the narrative of Matthew is going to slow way down. Up until this point, the first 20 chapters of Matthew, we've covered technically about 33 years Right, we've seen his birth, we saw the wise men, we've seen his ministry, but we've covered years and years and years of his ministry throughout the region of Galilee. And now for the next eight chapters, basically the rest of Matthew is going to cover one week. One week, what's usually called Holy Week uh, or Passion Week, if you will. Today is Palm Sunday, not today this cold, freezing day in Texas, but today in our, our text is Palm Sunday. In a week from this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus will be hanging on a cross. So these next eight chapters, Matthew slows way down and takes us moment by moment by moment throughout one week. So they're getting close to Jerusalem, and we see in verse 1, Jesus, this one who's been concealing his identity, now has very specific instructions for his disciples. They're getting close, and he says this. Look back at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, uh, if anyone says to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and they will send them to you at once. So Jesus is a mile away, and all of a sudden he wants to ride a donkey. So why? Is he just tired? It's, he's, he's been probably on, a, again, a 75-mile journey. He's been walking. Does he just think, you know, everyone has their limits. I need, I need to ride for this last mile. No, Jesus has something very, very specific in mind. Look how he's, he's very clearly orchestrating it, telling his disciples, go in. He knows where the donkey's going to be with her colt. He tells, her, tells the disciples what to say. If anybody stops them, it's going to look like they're stealing this donkey. If they do, just tell them the Lord needs them. This is apparently is pre-orchestrated. Jesus is setting something up. He's got something deliberate, very clearly planned. This hidden identity that he's had, this messianic secret, as it's usually called, is now going to fade away, and Jesus is going to take deliberate steps to finally reveal his identity through this sign of him riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. And so in case we don't pick it up, Matthew helps us out. Matthew makes it very clear to us. Look at verse four. 
This took place, Jesus giving the disciples these instructions with the donkey and her colt. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Matthew, the, the author of this gospel, is helping us out. Just in case you guys don't know what's going on with Jesus, let me tell you, this took place to fulfill what the prophet Zechariah said. He's quoting Zechariah 9.9. The promise, the prophecy that one day a king, the king, would come into Jerusalem this way, riding on a donkey. And now Jesus is orchestrating events to display to everyone who knows their Old Testament, which would have been everyone, the king is here. No more who is this man questions. No more what sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey this. Jesus himself is displaying through this prophetic sign, here's who I am, I'm the promised king. He's finally the revealed king. Now we've seen hints of this throughout. We even talked last week about Jesus being called the son of David, what that would have meant. He doesn't tell the blind men to be quiet. Maybe there was a little hint of it there. But just so that we understand the force of this moment, the force of this event, this Palm Sunday triumphal entry event, I want to just take a quick 10,000 foot fly over the Old Testament. Okay, we'll just cover a quick 39 books just so that we see what's actually happening here, that we don't just get kind of lulled to sleep by Jesus' scripture words. Okay, ever since Genesis 3, ever since the fall, the promises of God are all filtered through the coming of a person. All the promises of redemption, all the bad things becoming untrue, being renewed, being made new, come through a promised person. The first one we see in Genesis 3.15 says this. You'll be familiar with this passage. We quote it often. God talking to the serpent, Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring, plural and plural, right? There'll be fighting against the people of God and the people of Satan, the people of the devil. He, singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So it's not just God's people and the devil's people will fight. Now there's one offspring. There's one seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent. Go a little bit further in Genesis and we get another covenant with Abraham. We know the promise in Genesis 12 that he gets, he'll get a mighty nation. People will come from him. He'll get a land, the promised land, and people will be blessed through him. And God hones in a little bit more in Genesis 22 to clarify that covenant with Abraham. The very famous story of Abraham finally has Isaac, this promised son. And then God says what? Go up on a mountain and sacrifice your son to me. And Abraham obeys, goes, and he lifts the knife as Isaac is on the wood, and the angel of the Lord stops him and says, now I know that you believe in me. Now I know that you trust me. And then we see this in Genesis twenty-two fifteen. 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars in the heaven and on the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, singular, shall possess the gates of his enemies. Not your nation of Israel offspring. There's one offspring that will come and possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, singular, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So again, the Abrahamic covenant isn't just the people of Israel will bless because they'll be the people of God. Now all of a sudden there's one that will come from Abraham, one seed, one offspring, and through that one person, whoever it is, all the nations will be blessed. Genesis 3.15, the Abrahamic covenant. We looked last week at the covenant of David. David is going to have a son, one son that will sit on the throne and never step off it. He will be the eternal king who reigns forever perfectly. Keep going through the Old Testament. We get to the book of Daniel. 
And Daniel has this great vision in Daniel 7 of all the, these, these weird beasts, these two-headed lepers with wings and stuff like that, that represent all the kingdoms of the earth. And he sees these terrifying great beasts. And then all of a sudden he sees a vision of the ancient of days, God sitting on his fiery throne and the books of judgments are open and the beasts are slain. And then all of a sudden Daniel sees this in Daniel 7, 13. And I saw in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, came to God and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. We could go through Isaiah and look at the one suffering servant who through his wounds we will all be healed. We could go through Jeremiah, we could go through Ezekiel, we could go through all the prophets and all the wonderful redemption blessings come when this one seed son person comes. And Zechariah, the prophecy that's the theme of Matthew today. Here's the full context in Zechariah 9, 9, another promise about this one that will come, given to Israel while they're under Persian rule. Zechariah 9, 9, rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you double. On that day, the Lord, Yahweh, their God, will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of the crown, they shall shine in the land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty." The Old Testament is not just a bunch of random promises that a lot of happen to be about Jesus. All the hopes of the Old Testament are funneled through this person, this promised seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent, this promised offspring that all the nations of the earth will be blessed, this promised king that will reign forever in perfect justice, who will somehow forgive our sins, this promised one that when he shows up, when he walks through the gates of Jerusalem, the prisoners will be set free and we will praise the goodness and the beauty of our God. That is the momentum of the Old Testament pushing Jesus through the gates of Jerusalem. Do you see that? Do you see that? Jesus is revealing it as he marches forward on a donkey. And as he does... As he makes his way closer to the gate, we're going to see two different reactions, two different crowds, if you will. We're going to see a great crowd that's been following him, probably been following him for a while. Maybe a lot of them traveled with him from Galilee. A lot of them saw him heal the two blind men in Jericho, that crowd and the crowd of Jerusalem who look out and see him coming. So let's look at the first crowd first the ones who have been walking with him, how do they react to this clear sign that the king is being revealed? Verse seven, and they, the crowd brought the donkey, or the disciples brought the donkey and the colts and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them, the cloaks, not both animals at the same time, which might seem funny, but every single commentator I read pointed that out. So I guess people have issues with that. Uh, verse eight, and most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him and that follow him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So we've seen crowds 
marvel at him. We've seen crowds be fearful of him. We've seen crowds praise God as a result of him healing someone, but we've never seen a scene like this. In fact, in verse 8, when the ESV translates it, most of the crowd, probably a better translation would just be a very, very large crowd. This is the only way that, or only time Matthew uses uh, this sort of Greek wording. Most commentators think it's a way of Matthew pointing out this is the biggest crowd we've ever seen. This is the biggest crowd we've seen thus far. And notice the crowd is very much picking up on the sign. They know their Old Testament. Their hopes are set on this Zechariah prophecy, and so they see him entering into the city on a donkey, very clearly fulfilling this, and how do they react? They create the triumphal entry of their king. They take their cloaks, and they make a makeshift saddle on the donkey. Then they lay their cloaks on the road, making kind of a a makeshift Red carpet, if you will, clearly a sign of reverence. I'm going to take off my jacket and you can ride on top of it. It's clearly a sign of submission to him. And it's recalling an Old Testament story. In 2 Kings 9, Kings, First and Second Kings, just runs through the history of Israel and the history of Judah. And we just see bad king after bad king. We get a couple decent kings in Judah and Israel. We get almost all bad kings. And maybe the worst was King Ahab and his very infamous wife, Jezebel, It's even an insult to this day to call a woman Jezebel. So they were reigning over Israel, and actually Ahab had died, and his son Joram was reigning in his place. And God was saying, I'm cutting off this line. These have been nothing but wicked kings. I'm cutting them off. And so he sends a prophet to anoint uh, the, the next king, Jehu, and he is anointed, and we see this happen. Then in haste, Every male, this is right after Jehu's anointed king, every male took them, uh, sorry, then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him, under the new king, on the bare steps, and they blew a trumpet proclaiming Jehu is king. Okay, so again, the crowd around Jesus knows their Old Testament. And so they know the story almost certainly, and they're probably almost certainly intentionally repeating it. Let me take off our cloak, put it down. He's going to walk over them because King Jesus is here. So they put their cloaks down. They do one more thing in verse 8. We see they cut down branches. John tells us there's palm branches as we get the name Palm Sunday, and they spread them on the road. Again, it's, it's both a kind of a makeshift red carpet, and it's calling back to a very important event in Israel's history that we'll talk about a little bit later uh, on, called the Maccabean Revolt that happened in between our, our testaments, where they spread cloaks or spread palm branches as a sign of victory on the road. But you see this. It's a clear act of homage to the king. Our king is coming. And then the last thing they do is with a crowd in front of him and a crowd behind him in this massive procession, they cry out, they sing praises, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is a direct quote from Psalm 118, literally it means, save us God, I pray. It was originally a cry for help, and, and by the time of Jesus' day, rabbis had taken and turned it into kind of like a, a cry of thanksgiving. It is a way to say, you have saved us, O God, or the Savior that we've been crying out for is here. So it's not so much as a, a prayer, as a cry that our prayers of salvation have been answered. So as Jesus enters into the city, that's what they're crying out. Hosanna, salvation is here, the Son of David. The promised king who will reign forever is here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who comes to bring about God's purposes. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna as high as our praises can go all the way to the heavens. That's the first crowd's reaction. This is a triumphal entry, which if you remember Lee's sermon a few weeks ago, this would have been very common in the Roman world. When a king from Rome in particular had gone out and conquered a particular area, when they rode back into their city, there would be a great procession before them and after them all singing his praises as they entered into their city as the conquering victorious king. And so this crowd is quite literally creating this for Jesus. The victorious conquering king is here as they ride into the city. So that's this great crowd's reaction. That's the first one we see. And there's another reaction to him, another crowd's reaction in this story, and it's the whole city of Jerusalem. 
Not even its leaders, Matthew says, it's the whole city. How do they react? Look at verse 10. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So remember, Jerusalem is the city of the great king, Psalm 48. This is the, the, the religious center of the whole nation, right? This is the, the center of messianic expectation. If anybody knows what the Messiah would look like, if anybody should have their eyes out for the Messiah, it should be everyone in Jerusalem. This is the, the center of the religious life. And so one of the things that would happen in a triumphal entry is not only would there be someone in front and someone behind, but people in the city would run out and join the procession forward. It was a way to run out and kind of welcome the king as he comes in. Like if someone was on a long journey to your home, you might wait for them to knock on the door. I would imagine a lot of you have experienced, you, you, you know they're coming and you go out and meet them in the driveway and you hug them the first chance that you get, and you help them bring their bags in because of this great expectation of their arrival, and they're going to spend time with you. Similar idea. Is that what Jerusalem does as the king approaches? Does Jerusalem go out and join and say, the king is here, Hosanna, come into the city, O great and promised king? No. How do we see they react? First thing we see is they are stirred up. And that doesn't mean a good thing. It doesn't even mean they're kind of stirred up with confusion, like, oh, why is everybody singing? And it's the same word, same Greek word that's used to describe uh, earthquakes or uh, to be greatly agitated or even to, to bring about terror. Uh, and so it's, it's not a good characterization for the city as Jesus is approaching. It's a, it's a negative stirring. It's a, a great agitation that's being caused in the city. You could say Jerusalem is greatly disturbed, at his arrival, which we have seen this reaction before when a king comes near Jerusalem. Think back all the way back in Matthew 2. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 3. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right outside the city in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is to be born, the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. News that the king is here goes forth throughout Jerusalem. What's the reaction that we see? A great disturbance. A great agitation, great terror, you might say. That's the first thing we see. The city that ought to be rejoicing because they know the prophecies better than anybody. The promised Messiah is finally here. The one we've been waiting for is here. They're agitated. And then the next thing we see is they go and they give him a cold welcome. Who is this? Who is this? They're not joining in the praise and welcoming him in. It's not a curious question. This is a cold welcome. Remember, what has Jesus been telling his disciples? When I go up to Jerusalem, what will happen? I'm going to be hated. I'm going to be opposed. And I'm going to be killed. And here we're seeing the first signs of it. So Jerusalem's reaction is radically different, one of opposition. So we have this triumphal entry. The king is finally Revealed, The promised one is here. We see two different reactions, one of celebration and one of great opposition. But Matthew is beginning to show us little hints of something that's only going to grow over the next week, over the next eight chapters of his gospel. And that is this, the revealed king is also the radically misunderstood king. This revealed king who is getting praise and opposition at the same time is also the radically misunderstood king. Both crowds see him and recognize who he is claiming to be, but both have misunderstandings of what that means. Okay, so let's look at the second piece, the misunderstood king. Jerusalem, again, the center of religious life, 
the ones who should know and expect his arrival and welcome it. The, the temple is there. All the Oxford and Cambridge educated rabbis are there. They know the scriptures better than anyone in the land. They probably have their Old Testament memorized. It's not, a, it's not an exaggeration. It's not hyperbole. Probably have the Old Testament memorized. These are the teachers of Israel. What does Jesus say to Nicodemus where he's not understanding this whole born again language of John 3? You're a teacher of Israel and you're not getting these things? These are the religious leaders. It's the center of the Israel, Israel's religion. But the problem is, the problem that we've seen throughout the Gospels is though they know the content of Scripture, they've radically missed the message of Scripture. Though they know the content of the scriptures, they've missed the message of the scriptures. Jesus perhaps sums that up best in John 5. He says to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They know all the content, but they've missed the fact that they need a savior. They know all the content and all that has done is bolster their own self-righteousness, their own confidence in themselves to merit salvation. I need no savior because I'm not sick flows through their minds. And so when Jesus shows up with his radical claims of the poor in spirit inheriting the kingdom of heaven and lay down your life and follow me as I draw in the forgotten sick sinners and scoundrels, what is Jesus to them? He's a threat. He's a threat to their authority. He's a threat to their pride. And he's a threat to their power. And so he gets no welcome into their city. Their misunderstanding of who he is is a religious one. It's a scriptural one. They know the content. They don't know the message. What about the other crowd? What about the great crowd that we think is good, right? They're singing praises, right? They also have a radical misunderstanding, maybe even a worse one. And their misunderstanding is much more political, you might say. Have you ever wondered, I mean, again, this is a week from the cross. Have you ever wondered how it turns so quickly? Have you ever wondered how seven days from this event, Jesus will be hanging on a cross? How does it change so fast? The, the praised king is now the mocked, crucified man. The shouts of Hosanna turn to shouts to crucify him. Give us Barabbas in seven days. How does that happen? Well, it's because this crowd also has a very radical misunderstanding. They, they acknowledge he's king and they're right but what they think this king will do is very wrong. So everyone in our sin nature, everyone in this room and me, we hate authority by our very sin nature. I mean, that's the essence of the fall. I don't want God to tell me what is good and what is evil. I will determine for myself what is good and what is evil. That's what Adam and Eve say when they take the bite of the fruit. That's what you and I say, right? Everyone in here as a kid knows we don't naturally in our sin nature love authority. Hey, will you eat these things that will make you healthy and strong? No. Hey, will you not stick a fork into that thing that's almost certainly going to kill you? Yes, I will. I don't care what you say, right? Just because you're the authority over my life. We hate authority in general, and we certainly hate authority we deem wicked. We certainly hate authority that oppresses over us. Uh, One of my favorite pieces of film, it's a miniseries, is Band of Brothers, have you ever seen it? It follows a, a company of paratroopers throughout World War II, and, and Claudia and I actually went on a Band of Brothers tour throughout Normandy years ago, and we went to this, uh, this farmhouse field that they clear, it's actually in one of, the, one of the episodes where there was guns firing, German guns firing onto Utah Beach, and Easy Company was to go through and destroy those guns, and they, they do it, and it's successful, and then the show ends, but what the show doesn't show you is there's a, a farmhouse on the other side of that field, right? the farmer who, the French, the old Frenchman who was a World War I vet who owned that whole land. And this is in 44, and it's since 39, that farm, uh, French farmer who's a veteran had been occupied by German commanders in his own home. The Blitzkrieg had come through, the Germans had taken over, and they just would move in with the French and make the French serve them, which I don't know if you know much about the French. Uh, they probably didn't like that. 
right? And so uh, Richard Winters, who's the commander of Easy Company, went, goes, clears the field, destroys the guns, goes in, takes the, the Nazi commanders, ties them up in chairs, and tells uh, the, the old French grandpa, hey, will you watch them? I need to go tell command, radio in, that we've cleared this field. And he says, we. Oui. Uh, and so Richard Winters, that was French for yes, just in case you didn't know. Uh, Richard Winters goes, tells uh, the Allied forces, we've, we've done this. And he goes back into the house to take care, take these prisoners of war. And the Nazi commanders were not sitting alive in the chairs. They were on the floor and their throats had been cut. And he asked the old Frenchman, what happened? And he said, they fell. We hate authority. We certainly hate what we deem oppressive authority. Now, Israel has a very oppressive authority over them in Jesus' day called Rome, the greatest empire that has ever existed. Rome who put Herod, the wicked puppet king who would kill anyone who got in his way, who would kill babies, as we saw earlier in Matthew's gospel, if they deemed a threat. Everyone in Bethlehem is two or younger who had Pilate, the governor, over them, who Josephus, the Jewish historian, said his, his reign over this area was known as bloody and violent. So the oppression is a hard ruling. They'll crucify you if you try to rebel. Taxing is very heavy. Imagine the hatred boiling in the hearts of the zealous Jews, and they see Jesus, finally their king, coming in, this king, and all the promises say, what is he going to do? He's the son of David. What's David's legacy? He kills Goliath. He rids Israel of all of their enemies, pushes them out of their lands, and they finally have peace. And the promise is the son of David is going to be even greater than David. They're putting their cloaks down, reminding them of the story of Jehu becoming king. What did Jehu do after he became king? He went and killed all of Ahab's family, cleansing the wicked ruler from the area. They're putting palm branches down, which I said reminds them of the Maccabean revolt. In between your testaments, there's 400 years, which we call the 400 years of silence, meaning there's no prophet in 400 years in between Malachi and John the Baptist showing up. And in between that time, uh, a little startup named Alexander the Great shows up and conquers the whole known world. And when he dies, his kingdom gets split into four kingdoms, four of his generals took over. And the one that took over the area of Israel is named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he is an unthinkably wicked ruler. He banned Jewish worship. He went into the temple. He set up an altar to Zeus, and he slaughtered a pig, found the most unclean animal imaginable, and slaughtered a pig on the altar to praise Zeus. First and second Maccabees uh, has just unthinkable, torturous stories of people who would try to follow Yahweh and Antiochus would take them and just brutally kill them. But there was a man, a young zealous son of a priest named Judas Maccabeus, who led this revolt against the great Greek nation, and it worked, called the Maccabean Revolts, where we get the holiday Hanukkah, where they cleanse the temple finally, and then they have independence for around 100 years. And as they finally conquer the Greeks, again, this is in between our testaments, as they conquer the Greeks... We have this in 1 Maccabees. Look at this scene. On the 23rd day of the second month in the 171st year, the Jews entered with praising and palm branches, there it is, and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and, the, and with hymns and songs because a great enemy has been crushed and removed from Israel. That's in their minds too. Son of David, Jehu, the true and better Maccabee is here. We're all praising his name, expecting victory, expecting what? There's one thing in their minds. This Jesus who multiplies food and heals the sick and raises the dead, can you think of a better military leader, is going into the city and he's finally going to overthrow Rome. He's going to dethrone Pilate. He'll probably dethrone the emperor. We will be back to our heyday. That is the strong expectation of everyone singing Hosanna. It's Peter's expectation, which is why when Jesus says, I'm going to die, Peter rebukes him. How can you die if the whole point is you to make our earthly circumstances, our political circumstances better? That is the force of everyone going in singing Hosanna. Jesus is going to overthrow Rome, but there's something they very tragically missed in the prophecy. 
there's something that Zechariah points out of who this coming king will be that they have missed. Look back at verse 5. Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, conquering, no, humble, and mounted on a war horse, no, a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden, the lowliest of animals whose job is to pull a cart. That's who this king is. Is and they've blown right by it because of their great expectation that he's going to solve all my problems. They're praising him and their praises are radically misunderstood. They've missed that this king is the humble king who rides not on a chariot but on a lowly donkey. Like Jerusalem, this great crowd has missed the message of the scriptures that points to the character of this king. Is he born in the high courts in a golden crib? No, he's born in a feeding trough with no one to celebrate his birth except lowly shepherds and foreign kings. His own king wants to kill him. Does he call the Harvard-educated to be his great disciples? No, he calls unqualified fishermen and he puts tax collectors and zealots in the same inner circle. Does he eat and dine with the famous and the royal? No, he eats with sinners and scoundrels. They've radically missed his character. They've missed his message, even though they just saw him stop for the very, very low and blind, and they've missed in turn his mission. When he enters into Jerusalem, does he overthrow Rome? No. We'll see next week he overthrows Jerusalem. He goes in and he cleanses the temple, and he will spend the next several chapters denouncing Jerusalem as a whole and its leaders. He goes in and overthrows the exact opposite of what they think. Their misunderstanding is perhaps worse. They call him a prophet. Who is this? Jerusalem asks. He's the prophet. And they're, he's, they're right, but he's not the prophet that they want. He's a judging prophet, denouncing their practices. Will he bring salvation? Yes, but not the salvation that they want. Will he defeat the enemy? Yes, but not the enemy that they want. Will he conquer? Will he bring victory? Yes, but how? By conquering and killing? No, by being killed. So that he might actually crush the head of the ultimate enemy and he might defeat the enemy within the shackles of sin that have clung so close to the human heart ever since Genesis 3. You see this misunderstanding. Both crowds radically misunderstand him. They missed something, something they should see but don't see, and it's something that we must see lest we make the same mistake, fooling ourselves with our praise that our great king has come. And so lastly, let's look at the self-defining king. These big crowds, though, though Jerusalem and the big crowd following him seem to have different reactions, their misunderstandings are both flowing from the same place. Their misunderstandings are both flowing from the same place. Their starting point is what they want. The salvation they see fit, the king that they desire, their hopes, their plans, them, and they try and take Jesus and mold him into that image. Both of them are doing that. In Jerusalem, they want their authority, they want their pride, they want their self-righteousness, and Jesus threatens that, and so they have almost no, no place for him. He's a, he's a threat, and so they need to get him out of the way. They have opposition as a result. He's an unwelcomed nuisance. The crowd, they want to overthrow Rome, and so they praise him as the conquering king, and they are going to be radically disappointed starting next week, trying to mold him into an image that they see fit. Everyone through all of human history that has ever seen Jesus has the temptation to define him as we see fit. We see it in this chapter. We see it today, 2,000 years later. What do you see in our society? Every political candidate has to do something with Jesus, right? has to give some sort of lip service to their Christianity or their belief in God. But what, what's, what's the purpose? To get elected. It's a means to an end. 
Every movement that we see, whether liberal or conservative, typically has Jesus at the center. He either really cares for the poor and the disenfranchised and is very inclusive, or he's the truth one. He's the conservative, he's the moral one who doesn't like this drift of our culture. But again, what is it? It's, it's a means to an end, and we see that in the church all the time. The most popular form of Christianity throughout the world that is not Christianity is the prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus, sing his great praises, and he'll give you stuff. He'll give you health, he'll give you wealth, right? Your best life now, it'll be great. Jesus is awesome Santa Claus, right? His bag is full with goodies. Who really cares about him? But he's the ticket to an awesome life now. Come to Jesus, right? Believe hard enough in Jesus and you get all these things, right? Or probably more common in our circles, Jesus is the ticket to heaven or the ticket out of hell. We love the salvation that he brings, right? He he gets us out of eternal burning. That sounds awesome. And we just kind of ignore all the pick up your cross and serve others and radically be generous with your finances and lay down your life and basically anything that's uncomfortable. We love Jesus, meaning the Jesus that we've molded that actually suits everything that we already wanted to live. You see that? That is the temptation of our hearts to take Jesus and mold him into the one that we can praise. This crowd is praising him and so many of us often praise him, but we're actually not praising him, we're praising an idea of him we've created in our own heads. And I want you to hear me. The Jesus of your own making doesn't exist. Loving an idea of him that you have created is no better than Israel chopping down a tree, carving a little idol, and sacrificing to it. It's a figment of your imagination. And what Matthew is screaming to you is that Jesus already is. He is not a king to be used to your own ends. He is the self-defining king. He will define who he is, not us. He is the God of eternity who upholds the universe by the word of his power. This crowd can sing Hosanna because the one sitting on the donkey is giving them breath. You drove here this morning because the one sitting on the donkey kept your heart beating. He will define who he is, not us. He is the definer of reality who shows up and says, I will not be molded. I will not be used to a means to somebody else's end. I already am and I have an end in mind. And you have a choice. You have to reckon with the God who is. What will you do? We talked about this in Matthew 1.1, something Matthew's going to display over and over and over again. When Jesus shows up, he gives you a choice. Crown him or kill him. C.S. Lewis writing to a friend who was making an argument to him a couple decades ago that Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't the son of God. C.S. Lewis's response to that is says, that's not an option that you have. He says this, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great teacher. He has not left that open to us. He is the God who is, the one who is giving you breath, the king of the universe. You have a choice. Crown him or kill him, but you cannot mold him. You cannot use him as a means to your own end. You cannot just like him but not love him. You cannot be indifferent to him. You must oppose him or you must fall on the ground and worship him with your whole heart. Shout Hosanna, truly Hosanna, or shout crucify him. But those are your options. Daniel Doriani, who's a commentator on this passage, says this. If God is a person, as the scriptures says, wishing he were different does not make him so. He is who he is, personal interested, powerful, just, merciful, and he comes on a donkey, not a war horse. He comes not to slay his foes, but to die for them. 
Do you adore and love and serve and have you given your life to the Jesus who is? Or are you trying to mold him? Are you desperate? One way you can tell who's trying to mold who. Are you desperate for discipleship? Do you recognize I'm the clay that needs to be molded to look more like his image? Or are you good? I mean... I guess it'd be nice to do a Bible study every now and then, but kind of good. And you maybe unknowingly mold him more into your image. Do you see what Matthew is portraying as the revealed king is marching into your life? You have a choice. Lay your cloak down and adore the God who is, not the God of your own making. Or be done with him. But let's not do this middle ground. He has not left you that option. So as the train finally pulls into the station of Jerusalem and we enter the most famous week in human history, Passion Week, here's the choice again. Crown him or kill him. And let me encourage you, crown him. Maybe you haven't and you're looking for salvation elsewhere. Let me just encourage you. There's, there's every other so-called salvation will fail you. Many in this crowd who want to throw Rome will reject Jesus and look to other means. You know what happens? Rome overthrows Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then Rome gets overthrown. And then every kingdom that's ever existed gets overthrown. Every so-called salvation that you would look to will fall apart except this one. This one promised person. Crown him. But let me also warn you, if you do, it will require death. It will require you laying down all of your hopes, all of your plans, all of your dreams. He's not here to serve those. Rather, you have the wonderful, wonderful privilege of being invited into his hopes, his dreams, his purposes. Crown him. It will be painful, and it will be the most wonderful thing you've ever done. Because on the other side of death, there is a glorious resurrection life that is found in him. And you will find, for the first time, true purpose and the mission of missions and true rest and true mercy and true freedom and true joy, all in the true king. See the revealed king of the universe and crown him. He is infinitely worthy of it. And it is the only way for us to truly find the salvation that we were made to have. Let's pray. Father, your son is so much infinitely better than any ridiculous figment of our imagination that we've created. A Jesus who will serve us, a Jesus who won't change us in any way. Father, your infinitely wonderful son is so much better. And we're so blind to it. Even us who are believers, we're so blind to it. We wake up and he's an afterthought throughout our days. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see the coming king, but we would see the humble coming king. We would see the king mounted on a donkey. We would see the king who's come not to overthrow our worldly circumstances, but to overthrow our own wicked hearts. And oh, what glorious life is on the other side of that death. Would you give us a hunger and thirst for that righteousness? Would you give us a bitter taste of all the false promises the world gives us of so-called salvation that is out there that just leaves us high and dry every single time, but we never learn our lesson? Will you open our eyes to the infinite wonder of your Son, our King that is coming, that we might actually rejoice as your people, because our king has come and he has overthrown our hearts and he has overthrown the serpent and he has brought true victory and life that we might praise him for the God that he is, not the God that we want him to be, and that we might be the ones that are conquered by our glorious son of David. Would you do that to our hearts, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.